Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. I'm your host, Sarah Buino. I'm a psychotherapist, teacher, consultant, and most importantly, a wounded healer, living and working in Chicago, Illinois. On this show, I interview folks in a variety of healing professions, and we discuss the intersectional journey of healing self while caring for others. We're not just focused on individual healing, but also healing on the collective level from white supremacy, late-stage capitalism, and the patriarchy. Thanks for joining us. Hello, welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. I'm Sarah Buino, and if you can't tell, I have a stuffed up nose. I have a cold right now. I'm very angry about it, and so I'm going to talk like this. No, I won't. I won't talk like that, but (laughs) just wanted to let you know why my voice sounds a little weird today, Um, and I'm going to bitch about that and capitalism in just a second. But before I do that, a little invitation. If you are a frequent listener of the pod, I appreciate you and I love you so much. And I wonder if you would do me a little fave. If you listen on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, you can rate us. You can give us like, I think four or five stars. I can't remember what the most is. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, or if you even don't listen on Apple Podcasts, you can still go in and rate and review the podcast and write a little something. It is really helpful, mostly for credibility purposes. I know if if I'm asked to be a guest on a podcast, I always take a look and see if they have reviews because it says that, oh, somebody's listening and somebody likes this. So it would be so, so helpful if you wouldn't mind giving me a little feedback. And I appreciate you so very much. Well, thank you. So now to bitch about capitalism and my cold. So first of all, I haven't been sick other than I had COVID once, but I haven't been sick in three years. So I'm out of practice. I feel like a big old baby. Also, this thing that happens every time I decide I'm going to rest, I am filled with shame and guilt, so much shame and guilt. And I've, you know, I've, I've done a Workaholics Anonymous program, so I know a lot of it has to do with this internalized capitalism and the productivity culture sort of that my parents really bought into. And that was also infused into me growing up. I was never allowed to take a sick day unless I was throwing up. And I distinctly remember one, I'm sorry, this is gross. So I hope you're not eating while you're listening to this, but I distinctly remember one time knowing that I was really sick. My mom forced me to go to school anyway. They had spaghetti for lunch in the cafeteria. And then I had spaghetti for lunch in the toilet just after that. And then I was allowed to go home. That's not okay, right? Like we should be able to trust that our bodies need rest and that they get to rest when they do. And so anytime I'm sick, I struggle tremendously with just letting my body do what it needs. I actually canceled class yesterday because I was feeling so bad and I felt terrible. Like, oh, I'm robbing these kids of their education and I'm a terrible teacher. But like, it just is what it is. And sometimes our bodies need a break. And when we don't give them the break that they need, sometimes they just say no. So there's that piece. And then also, I vaguely remember recognizing this in the past, but not necessarily equating it with capitalism. So I have been taking cold medication to try to like lessen the terrible symptoms I'm experiencing. 
And I took my Mucinex D. No, Mucinex is not a sponsor of this. I probably shouldn't have said it, but I took I took a decongestant yesterday and it lasts for 12 hours, right? So I note that. I kind of do the time in my head. When is this going to wear off? I'm going to bed last night and I go to take the nighttime decongestant and realize it lasts for four hours. What? kind of bullshit is that? If I'm supposed to get eight hours of sleep a night, I need a scientist. I'm going to call my brother and ask if there is a scientific reason why the nighttime cold meds don't last for eight hours, because that's redonkulous and upsetting to me. If my body needs rest and needs a decongestant at night, it needs at least eight hours of sleep. And I was so furious. And I texted a friend of mine and I was like, This is some capitalistic bullshit, isn't it? And it is, right? It just shows that we've used our science to make sure that if we have a cold for 12 hours a day, we can function. But at night, who cares about the sleep? You're just going to be a snotty mess when you wake up at two in the morning after you've taken the medication. So that's all I have to say about that. I I posted on Instagram about that today because it just, it's just, it's a little thing, right? Like it's silly. There may be some, I'm going to ask my brother, I swear to God, and I will follow up with you and let you know if there is a scientific reason why the cold meds do not last all night long. But it's a silly little thing that is just another example of the way that productivity culture is just accepted and we're not necessarily challenging it. And when we don't see it and we don't challenge it, then we're just maintaining the construct And I can't change, obviously, what cold medication is offered out there, but I can change my relationship with how I believe my body deserves rest when it is not feeling well and it needs support. So there's that for you. I wish health and wellness upon all of you so that you don't have to deal with cold medication anytime soon. Now on to today's very special show. So it's a very special show because I have three guests. I've never done this before. And it was super fun because these people are uh, the head heart management team. So you heard from Rayelle probably about this time last year, actually, who is now the, well, almost, we still haven't finished the financial transaction, but the owner of head heart therapy and the management team that she has supporting her are Anna Goldberger, Benji Martin, and Joanna Taubenek. So I'm going to read all of their bios to you because even though we're sort of putting them together as a unit on this episode, they are individual, wonderful, very richly talented and amazing humans. And I want you to know about them individually. So in alphabetical order, Anna Goldberger, LCSW, is a licensed clinical social worker and the clinical manager at Head Heart Therapy. Before becoming a social worker, she worked as a community organizer. Because of this experience, she recognizes the need for emotional, spiritual, and psychological healing among communities and individuals fighting for justice. She brings this recognition and joy for holding compassionate healing space for all who need it into her therapeutic relationships. Benji Martin, LCSW, is a licensed clinical social worker and the director of operations at Head Heart. Benji believes that therapy supports the telling of your story from a non-judgmental and curious lens. You and only you are the expert in your story. He sees therapy as a journey in which therapist and client experience together through a non-hierarchical relationship that focuses on empowerment. Benji is the guide, but ultimately the journey is yours. And finally, Joanna Taubenek. 
Joanna Taubenek, LCPC, and a bunch of other letters I'm going to let you read, (laughs) is a licensed clinical professional counselor, registered dance movement therapist, certified movement analyst, and experienced registered yoga teacher. She's also the clinical director at Head Heart Therapy. As a former dancer, Joanna is passionate about movement and acknowledges that the body holds deep intuitive wisdom and also imprints many of our life experiences. The body remembers on a physiological level, oftentimes much more fully than the brain, in moments of calm and also in moments of trauma. So these are people who have my heart. They are so special to me and they are part of the reason that I was able to make the leap moving on to new and different things. I was going to say bigger and better, but it's not better. It's just different. So I love Anna, Benji, and Joanna, and I sure hope you love this conversation that we all have together. OMG, hello. 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 Hi. (laughs) This is the first time I've done an episode with four of us on a call. The most I've done before is three. So it's going to be fun to manage this uh, circus this morning. We're here for it. We're here for it. So we are sitting with the management team for Head Heart Therapy. And I have just been so in awe and so honored to witness the blossoming of your journeys as leaders in the company and just in life, right? I was thinking about this before talking with you today that both Benji and Joanna, I've known you since you were babies in the field, right? And then Anna came later and it's just, I don't know, it's just really, really cool. So let's start in alphabetical order, introducing yourselves. Anna, you want to I'm Anna Goldberger. I am clinical manager and therapist, and I joined the Head Heart team in April, end of April 2022, so very recently. Mm-hmm. Do I need to say anything else about myself? I think we can do that for now. Yeah, yeah. Benjamin, as Raelle likes to call you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, she does. And that's fine. Just no Ben, I always say. No Ben. Yeah. I'm Benji. Martin. I'm the director of operations and therapist at Head Heart. And yeah, I've been here since June of 2020. So in the midst of the pandemic. You came in the thick of it. Yes. So we're going, we're going reverse order for seniority. So Joanna. Yeah, I was in both of both of your interviews, which is exciting. I got to bring both of you on, which has been great. I'm Joanna Tobinek. Um, I'm the clinical director at Head Heart Therapy. And gosh, I guess now it's been, I joined the team in November of 2019. So right before the pandemic. So it's been, I guess, just over three years, which is crazy. Yeah, right. Yeah. And Benji was a student of mine in the substance use disorder class. And I met Joanna while she was interning at Harborview Recovery Center when she was a baby therapist. A baby. Yep. A baby. And Anna, you worked with our friend. Janae. Janae. Jesus Christ. Oh, my God, Janae. I have not forgotten your soul. I just forgot your name. Your soul is the most important part of you. Janae and I worked together at Lurie. Yeah. And we worked together at Alternatives with John, who was also on the team. Well, 
We on the pod love to get into therapist origin stories. And I mean, we've got a lot to talk about today, so we'll keep these a little bit brief, but I'd love to hear who wants to go first and tell your, how did you become a therapist story? I can go. Great. I don't mind. Yeah, it was a very winding path for me and and certainly was not ever a actual intention that I had pre kind of making the decision to go to grad school. I was a dancer and I danced professionally, which is <laughs> weird to think about because sometimes it feels like a whole other life. But I danced uh, at um, the Tisch School of the Arts at, at NYU and and then danced afterwards in New York for a bit. And that was going to be it. That was going to be my career. That's all I ever wanted for myself. That's I thought I wanted for myself. After some time of being out of school, I realized I was struggling a little bit, struggling with my own kind of mental health around the fact that I didn't have as much structure. I, I didn't have the same schedule of getting up every morning, going to ballet class, et cetera, et cetera. And I started realizing that I needed some support. I didn't really know what that meant at the time. I ended up doing a yoga teacher training, which I think helped me understand the mind-body connection a little bit more in a way that I hadn't before, which led me to my own like, oh, shit, I'm doing all this yoga and a lot of emotion is coming up for me and a lot of my past whatever is is suddenly very much at the surface. And so I ended up finding a program where I was able to study dance movement therapy and counseling. So it was a nice little marriage between having this newfound understanding of mental health and wanting to dig into that, but also feeling like I wasn't totally escaping my dance background. And it really wasn't until I was sort of deep into my master's program that I realized it was actually clinical. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know what I thought I was going to be doing. I like liked the words dance movement and therapy. Like those were cool words. I wanted to like to do that. I don't think I really understood that it would actually take me into this being in the role of an actual like real clinician. But realizing that that's where it took me, it it felt right. It was exciting and it was intense and um yeah. So no longer really dancing so much, but it's nice to have the understanding of the body and and to be able to continue to bring that into the work. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Who's next? I can go. I can go. Yeah. I mean, kind of similar to some of your points, Joanna. I was just telling a friend this last night. I, If you had like asked me what I wanted to do all of my life, therapist was never even, like, I never even thought of that as an option. I graduated undergrad in um, 2011 in, in creative writing. Yeah, midst of the recession, like a true millennial. Just kind of floundered for a long time. I worked at uh, animal shelters. I worked at donkey daycares. Yeah, and, and yeah, just kind of like floundered around for a long time. And yeah, I didn't know much about psychology. I never even taken a class on it. I didn't know anything about social work. But I knew I wanted to go into something where I could, I think at the time, I articulated as like a, a want to help people. But I, I think kind of to your point, Joanna, it was like more about helping myself, <laughs> right? Like, I, I feel like I was drawn to the field because I, I needed healing and, and just wasn't able to articulate that. 
So I went to, went to grad school at Loyola. That's where I met you, as you said. I worked with high schoolers and young people at first. And to that point, like, I feel like my career is sort of going up in the ages where I needed healing, right? And like mm. working with kids helped me work through my own things and, and things that I needed to heal from going into adulthood. Yeah. And I, I think like also like realizing that not that like anxiety and depression aren't normal, but like realizing that it doesn't have to be that way. Because right? I think for most of my life, I was sort of trapped in those cycles. And helping others work through that has really helped me work through that. And, you know, I ain't perfect. I ain't there yet, but, <laughs> but it feels good to be doing that. That's awesome. And I never thought about that because I started working with adolescents too. And I was doing it specifically for career trajectory, knowing that I wanted to work with folks that struggled with addiction. But you're probably right that like many of us who are working with younger people, that's to heal ourselves too at that age. Wow. Yeah. I realized that like I was drawn to the kids who like were withdrawn, who didn't have friends, who were alone at recess. You could guess why. Right? Yeah. Wow. Mm. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Thank you. Anna Banana. Yeah. Do people call you that? Is that terrible? No, it's not terrible. People, my brother mostly, but that's fine. Okay. So, um, <laughs> yeah. So I like this question. I like that it's making me think about this. And again, I graduated from undergrad in the previous century, 1999 to be specific. Um, and I wanted to go into community organizing. And I did that for a while, several years, like five years. And I loved it. And I was very passionate about it. But it was definitely like a burnout area. And there was something missing for me, I think. There was a community organization that I worked with in Little Village for a while. And the lead organizer was like doing this amazing combination of like healing for Mexican immigrant moms because she was one herself and she didn't even know she was doing it. She was just doing this stuff organically and was like, yeah, we can organize these moms, but they need to spend time together talking about what hurts and feeling better about themselves. And I was so drawn to that. And my own therapist at the time who was amazing and witchy and awesome, I was like always paralyzed with anxiety and I was with her and she was helping me a lot. When I was like trying to figure out how to leave community organizing, she was like, I think you have some healing energy that you need to harness and use. So she's like, I felt it in here with you. So, which was really awesome. Oh, that's so awesome. Yeah, it was cool. I chose social work school. And I think I probably did the same thing. I worked with adolescents first. And um, yeah, I know I was working through stuff while I was supporting those kids and kind of honing my skills. And then into medical social work, which I never thought I would do. And then I did it for like six and a half years and like worked with the families in the children's hospital and then like raged against the system all the time. And it was exhausting. So then it was time to move into private practice and like sink into the work in a way I really had been wanting to for a long time, which also means sinking into like where I'm at and who I want to be. It's like, I feel like I'm moving towards this self-actualization right now. So 
I don't know what it's going to look like. It's going to be messy, but here we are. Yeah, that's that's awesome. And that's something I think about a lot is I can't not be doing my work because if I'm not doing my personal work, there is no way I can help a client. Yep. And the fact that we all share this is why you all work at Head Heart, because that's one of the biggest sort of values that I've always held and and wanted for the team. So I guess just to tell uh, listeners why I wanted all of you here together is I think what we've created at Head Heart is maybe unique. I don't know. Like I hear from many of you that it feels really special. And so I kind of wanted to brag about how special it is. Right. And, and what we've created. And I'm curious maybe to kind of compare and contrast, obviously not to like name names and shame places that you've been before, but like what's different, what feels like a good fit at head heart that you hadn't found in your jobs before. I can just jump in and, and say it, it just feels incredibly safe. Um, I know that's a, such a big, broad umbrella term, but for me, I guess that means I can be my full, authentic self and I don't have to be, I guess, growing up and having such this, you know, intense dance drive and kind of um, presence in the dance world where literally it it always felt like striving to be perfect and present in a very particular way. But that also came from me. Um, I know that that was in me. It wasn't just the influence of dance. It was my own perfectionism. It was my own shame and hesitancy around showing messiness or, you know, chaos. But that you have created a space where that all parts are welcome, right? Like, you can bring your perfectionism and it's not really going to, you know, help in, in a lot of ways, but we can bring it and talk about it and figure out what purpose it's serving and, and how we want to perhaps shift away from it, or I want to, speaking for myself. And that it it doesn't have to be just the work environment isn't just about proving yourself or getting a notch higher on the ladder or whatever that means, or doing this sort of exceptional job by any sort of textbook standard. Um, it means really being a full therapist and full part of the team at Head Heart means bringing each and every piece of your life, the messy, the beautiful, the frustrating. And I think with that, feeling the trust from you that we are all able to figure out how to navigate it, right? That like, that even if it's hard, that we have your support and each other's support for how to move through whatever it is that we're going through. I mean, I know that's been like, so earth shattering for me to have a space where I feel like, you know, the people around me and, you know, managers, et cetera, just say, hey, you know, what is it that you need and how can I support you in in getting there? And that actually that's the thing that makes us do good work, right? It's not about like put all these sort of rough edges aside, smooth them all out and get rid of them and hide them 
because that's how you're going to show up as the best possible therapist. It's actually the opposite, that if we can bring our authentic selves and let it not necessarily be this sort of perfect picture, that's actually what translates into being, I think, an effective therapist. So it just feels like that's, I mean, certainly before being in this field, but also being in the mental health field, I have never been in a workplace where I've felt the safety of feeling like I could just be human. Mm. So thank you. <laughs> mm. Thank you. Warms my heart too. Yeah, I'm totally with you. And then I feel like coming from from community mental health and and yeah, and not to shame anyone at the agencies that I did work with, because I think it's it's a system problem, right? Not a them problem. <laughs> right. You know, I feel like the support that I got at those agencies were really like, okay, are you meeting your numbers? Are you seeing enough clients? Are you treating them in the ways that we need to be according to the grants that we're getting? That was the extent of the support, right? And I think in that way, like I never, yeah, like to Joanna's point, I never felt like I could just be me. Like the therapy was always like, all right, what do I need to do to this person <laughs> to make them quote, better. I know people can't see me, but I'm quoting them. <laughs> quote, unquote, better. Yes, quote, unquote, better. Yeah. <laughs> as opposed to, yeah, just showing up as my authentic self and letting them show up as their authentic self. I was also like working in schools and there was a lot of like internalized like queer phobia with that too for me around like I can't be myself in this space because I might, people are going to get the wrong idea. Parents are going to get the wrong idea. And so like, yeah, that was all layers in this of like, I was really hiding in those jobs. I liked the work itself, right? Like I knew like, this is what I want to be doing, but like, ooh, I can't keep it in all the time. Right? So coming here and, and being curious about what it can mean to like radically embrace who I am has been great. And like, I won't lie, also really hard sometimes, right? Because there's also like a, oh, wow, I'm looking at parts that I've never looked at before. <laughs> and that's kind of painful sometimes, but like also revolutionary for me. So yeah, being curious about me, being curious about how I can show up with people instead of to or for them has been huge. And I think it's allowed me to look at other spaces too that I want to be a part of. So for me, that's what's different. And I think with that curiosity and compassion has also come like a, I remember like, particularly you, sometimes Rael, right, would like come to me and be like, hey, Benji, like, you're not doing this thing great. Like, what's going on? Right. And like, oftentimes, there's this automatic reaction of like, what do you what do you mean? What do you, what do you mean? I'm not like, I'm so sorry. Oh, my God, let me fawn and <laughs> make sure that you don't hate me. And like that, that's like beyond just workplace, right? That's family and, and all that, all that fun stuff. But like, yeah, being in a space where it's like, I am authentic and I can be held accountable in a way that like, you can still love me, right? And I can still love you. Like, is also like radically different. Yes. Yeah. I'm really glad I was actually going to bring that up because as Joanna was talking, like, yeah, all parts of us are welcome here and we still have work to do, right? Like there is still accountability. And I mean, I think that probably for every single one of us and including Rael too, learning how to hold people accountable, how to hold those boundaries. Like we're good at the loving part at Head Heart, but we're not really good at the holding people accountable part as much as we could be. Because I think so many of us were harmed in many 
instances being held accountable inappropriately or harshly or punitively, right? Yeah. It has been reparative for me to be held accountable in the way that we are, I think, at head heart because it's done with honesty and directness and trust and compassion and actual support. It's healthy accountability that doesn't feel scary and bring up PTSD, you know, of (laughs) damaging (laughs) ways of being held accountable, you know. Right, right. Yeah. Anna, how about for you? What have you found different at Head Heart than other work environments? I do feel like this is the first workplace I've ever been in where a couple things. One is we're like working so hard to model what we want to be learning with our clients and in our own interactions with each other. So all this gentle, loving accountability is and owning our own issues is like what we're trying to be with our clients as well. Right. And so then when we do that in our own interactions with each other, it just feels whole, right. Which is like, I guess another way that we can bring our whole selves into the work. Also, I mean, the social justice values, the anti-oppression, the anti-racism, like having these really honest conversations, like in our liberation meetings too, about ways that we might be perpetuating oppression, but it's not, it's like open and vulnerable. Those were like things at other workplaces where I'd, I'd bring things up or other people would bring things up and everyone would be like, oh yeah, that's important. We should talk about it. And it would just get pushed aside. Like there just wasn't a priority and there wasn't time. Would you describe for listeners what the liberation meetings are? We once a month and during our staff meeting, a staff person brings in a topic, a liberation oppression slash oppression related topic. And we discuss it as a group and discuss how it might be impacting our work or our interactions with one another. And sometimes people beforehand will send out like podcasts or articles so we can educate ourselves a little bit on the topic. I did one on fat liberation, some anti-racism ones. So that's been like, it's like part of the effort to incorporate those values into our actual work, which is so great. I haven't really worked anywhere else. It's like, there's a lot of lip service at the other places I've worked. Yeah. I grew up in a family where it was very much like, you have to look good on the outside, right? We're good Christian people. And so you have to look a certain way to make me look good. And I was always furious because I was in so much pain. I was like chronically suicidal as a child. And I was furious that there wasn't real transparency. There wasn't real authenticity. And I felt like my mom oftentimes was such a hypocrite in the way that she would practice her Christianity outside. But then with me, everything fell down. And so, I mean, that's, that is like, I have always pushed myself to be a walk the talk kind of person. Like if I tell a client to do it, it's likely because I have done it myself, or there's a part of it that resonates with what I've needed to go through. And I mean, I'd like to think that is also part of what makes us different at Head Heart. That's modeled and it, it's expected, right? That you are going to do that deep work on yourself in in all ways. Absolutely. Yeah, it's helped give words too to me in that in that sense for like, oh, wow, like my growth as a person 
in therapy and as a therapist is parallel with my growth as like a white person who strives to be anti-racist. Yeah. Or like a cis person who strives to like champion trans issues. I mean, so those things all work alongside each other. And I've always kind of known that, but I feel like I'm getting to like see it and act it out a little bit more by working here. That's really cool. That, yeah, that makes me so happy. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'd love to talk about, you know, speaking of our internal processes, right? None of you have been in management positions. I mean, I, Joanna, you had a position at, I think, the yoga studio, but other than that, right? None of you. You've had some. Oh, you did have some? Okay. Okay. Yeah, but I ha- I was a manager for a year at C4 and then I got demoted because of budget problem. <laughs> it was fun. Not to name names. <laughs> so you lost your management position. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> and I had very little support while I was doing it. Again, I'm yeah. not to trash C4, but it was interesting. Community mental health is a topic that I probably need to have like an entire podcast on, but we digress. But so, right, growth as managers, I'm guessing that you all have experienced that in this role. And I'd love to hear a little bit about that growing process for you. Yeah, it's funny you like, you know, I, I know we're, <laughs> we're only voices on the podcast, but as you seeing myself, uh, you know, in the screen, as, as you as you ask that question, I noticed myself get really, like my shoulders went up to my ears and I got all like tense and narrow. And I think it's just because this has been, it's been uncomfortable. It is uncomfortable. And also, it's huge. Like, it's incredibly healing for my deep, deep, deep codependency, you know, raging people pleasing tendencies and fear of having difficult direct conversations. It's not something that was ever modeled for me growing up. It's not something that happens in my family. Uh, it, it's it's something that I've had to learn, you know, had to learn. And I think I've learned that process began, I guess, when I sort of stepped into this arena, so to speak, you know, in, in grad school and kind of started looking at myself a little bit more clearly. But yeah, being in a management role, I have been in, in management roles at yoga studios. Um, but being in this particular management role, it's, it really is about individual growth as a human, because what we're doing as leaders is it's not just about like keeping things organized or structuring things. It's about, it's about holding people accountable, right? Holding people accountable, having hard conversations, navigating conflict, making really hard decisions that don't feel good, that feel horrible to the parts of me that want to be everybody's best friend, because that's not possible in this role. We can't be. But there's a way to make hard decisions and be direct and honest, sometimes in a challenging way. There's a way to do that also with compassion. And it's not a black and white thing. That's what I learned. I learned that if you're being direct and stating something that's hard to hear, that means that you're perpetuating a problem. You're stirring things up. You're messing with the appearance of things. That's why you hold things back. But that's not the case. It's not either or. It's You can have a hard conversation and do it from a place of love. I feel like I've been with the support of, of the team and, and all of you. It's like um, strengthening a new muscle. Yes. Yes. 
Totally. And I saw you deeply resonating with some of the things Joanna said. Do you want to add? Well, yeah, for sure. The raging people pleaser. I feel like I need a t-shirt or something. Yes, let's make them. Okay, cool. And I was just thinking as Joanna was talking about how I have like a side of me that's very assertive and outspoken and then a side of me that's like all very people pleasy and conflict avoidant. Mm -hmm. Same. Oh, that's like my dad and my mom. There you go. (laughs) And um, I also know that because of the way we like hold each other in these spaces and hold accountability, but also make room for whatever we're struggling with, that like finding the sort of the place where those two things can meet up and work together is possible. So it is uncomfortable and there already has been growth. I mean, I just, I'm the most recent, obviously I started less than a year ago, but I've already had situations where I'm also having some of those uncomfortable conversations or I'm having supervision with a therapist who's just had a really uncomfortable conversation with other managers and how to navigate all of those things. It's like really hard. It also feels like the right kind of development for me too, because it's an area I've been wanting to grow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Benji, do you want to add? Yeah. I mean, I guess for like one thing that's coming to my mind now is this whole idea of like having spent most of my life sort of trying to hide, right? And and like hiding as much as I could. It was this was really an opportunity to be forced into not hiding, <laughs> right? And like I don't know, that sounds like overly aggressive and, and I never felt like that. But you know, it was, yeah, a way to really show up. Yeah, because I think that's a big part of why I've never been a manager, right? Like, I never even thought about that as a possibility because I didn't, I didn't want to be seen like that. Or I didn't mm-hmm. want to be seen at all, right? So, yeah, yeah. I've said this to you before, Sarah, just to name it, like, you know, that's what you've done for me ever since I knew you as a professor, right? Is like, you have this ability to, like, pull things out of people that like you see that they don't maybe want to show (laughs) but like it's important to yes and all of my relationships can tell you how painful (laughs) when it's it's not like really required (laughs) but i've appreciated it and i'm remembering like one time i don't even remember me and you and rael were in a meeting i don't remember what we were talking about but I had asked something about like, I feel like you all aren't liking this about what I'm doing or or something like that. And you had said something like, Benji, like we're not operating out of passive aggression here. (laughs) And that was huge for me, right? Because like I've lived my life like just assuming people were being passive aggressive to me, right? Which, you know, which is more uncomfortable to name for me is that that also means that I've acted out of passive aggression, right? Right. So like recognizing that like passive aggression that like that's coming from a place of like not being able to hold my own anger, right? Or other people's anger. Right. And then like yes. being in a space where like I can be angry. And again, to what we've all said, it doesn't mean I don't love the person, right? Or they don't love me. Right. 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 Well, it's funny that you're bringing that up because I think that one of the really cool things about the way that the management team has always communicated and I I'm guessing that this is just, I modeled this because this is how I move through the world. And then it just kind of became part of the system. But like, if something happens that we have feelings about, we 
air the feelings. We really spend time, right? Like if somebody's hurt or somebody's angry or, you know, somebody, you know, feels attacked or whatever it is, like we sit with those feelings. We say whatever the fuck we need to say, right? Whether it is comfortable or not. And then once we move through the feelings, then we get to work, right? And I mean, not that the feeling part isn't work, but then then we do the work that needs to be done in order to take action to reconcile or whatever next steps are in the situation and how crucial I think that that is. I mean, I, I imagine like Joanna, you and I are so similar and I think you and I specifically both really need that. But yeah, yeah. Curious if anyone has any any thoughts, anything to add or reactions to that. The space for the feelings first. Yeah. I mean, it, it feels to me, it's like it feels really natural it just feels like this is this makes so much sense when there is an issue. So I'll take I'll use this little bitty example. There was like this tiny task that I took on. It's just writing up the protocol for creating a group and putting it in the drive. And I was avoiding it to the point where like nobody even remembered they'd asked me to do it. And I'm like, oh, they're all waiting for it. And I thought about it for a second. Like, what am I avoiding? It's like, oh, well, I feel a little overwhelmed by how to start. I don't know how to start. So I identified that. And then I sat on it for a while more. And then I was like, Oh, my God, I can take this to the management team. And they'll help me with it. It was like, it just it's like, I'm not used to that. Right. And I knew that I suddenly I knew I could do that. So that's a tiny thing. It's not even like wasn't even like a conflict. If it was, it was all internal. It's all in my head. Right. It's a good example of because this is how we do things, I now also can get comfortable with and build the habit of saying, here's what's going on for me. And now that I've gotten that out of the way and talked it over with you all, I can get to work like you were saying, Sarah. And it just feels, it clicks with something inside of me. And I think other people don't need that or don't operate that way. And then that this wouldn't be the right workplace for them in that case, I guess. I guess that's part of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and talking about like oppression and liberation, I don't know if you guys specifically know this story, but so Sarah Suzuki, I've talked about her a million times on the pod. She was like an early, an early interview. So she's my BFF and we wanted to do anti-racist trainings together. And she said, well, before we do that, you've got to go to this training with me. So it's a two and a half day training by this organization called Crossroads. And the point of the training is essentially to audit your own organization and see how you line up with liberation values versus dominant culture, white supremacist values. And it was so funny because Sarah is a person of color and she was recognizing all of the ways that she had been perpetuating white supremacy. And we look at mine and not that again, like the organization was not perfect, but all of the things that naturally for me were more on the liberation side, this being one of them, right? Valuing people's feelings over the work that needs to get done. But ironically, when we put that first, then the work gets done and the work gets done more efficiently. So I just I found that so, so interesting that like what felt organic and natural to me is that is what I wanted to create in the world as a more liberated workspace. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about conflict, because I think 
all of us have had, like, I wrote this a little bit in my like goodbye letter to head heart that I am child free by choice, but I have unfortunately, thanks to the universe, learned all of the lessons that I needed to learn, <laughs> like that I thought I was avoiding by not becoming a mother. And one of the big ones was, I didn't want people to hate me, right? And like, we talk about this people pleasing and the painful reality of being a boss is that somebody's always gonna hate you. You are always going to fail someone, hurt someone. And truly like, if I if there's a way that I could go back and do it so that people wouldn't leave hurt or we've had, we, I've had mostly me, I've had several like really tragic breakups with people who had previously worked for me. And that has been the most painful thing I, I think I've ever experienced. And I'm just curious, you guys experiencing some of that, how you moved through that and how that ultimately has helped your growth as managers. Yeah. Well, I guess, you know, one thing that's coming to my head right now is this, you all know this listeners don't, I'm, I'm in the somatic experiencing training program and the understanding that people pleasing is like a physiological response that happens to us. Right. And not just something that I do sort of consciously. Right. Has really, really helped me get through some of that. Right. Cause I can recognize it as like, a, I react in a way that, because I feel unsafe. Yeah. When there's an employee who's mad at me or, or yes, there has been one or two that didn't like me. I react in a way that I felt unsafe, right? Like there was this feeling of like danger, right? And that understanding has really helped me sort of normalize it for myself and help me get through the shame of it. So I think like recognizing that and then again, going back to the management team and being able to sort of articulate some of that has helped me be encouraged that like you are actually not unsafe, right? <laughs> like like this is going to be okay and and this person just they're going through whatever they need to go through that's helped me in my personal life right that's helped me be able to have some of these tough conversations it's helped me be able to recognize that like people are operating in the world and however they need to operate and in whatever ways that makes them feel safe and 99.9% of the time that has nothing to do with me right and reminding myself of that is huge hmm. I love that. Not to say like separate from accountability, right? Like sometimes I do hurt people and, and I do want to be held accountable for that, of course. Right. To me, that's different than someone putting their own projections onto me. Right. Yeah. It's, it's making me think of, you know, my sort of learned understanding of conflict and how I've operated probably for decades, you know, in my, in my own moments of conflict where it's this feeling of, well, if I'm less direct and if I tiptoe more, it's because I don't want to hurt your feelings, right? It's right. because I don't want to, I can be nice about that, you know, whatever, you know, quote unquote, whatever nice means. But that really learning that that actually is, it tends to be more hurtful, right? That the less direct, you know, feeling like, oh, I'm going to try to dance around this so that I can not make you feel, you know, whatever, again, whatever that means to make you feel uncomfortable or I'll do this as gently as possible. I guess gentle meaning as indirect as possible and as kind of vague as possible. So that will make things easier to, to deal with. And that it's the opposite. It isn't effective and it actually is more hurtful for so many different reasons. 
and that there might be, yeah, there might be like a pang of ouch in a moment where depending on what's going on or what the situation is where someone's like, oh shit, you know, I'm feeling a feeling and it's uncomfortable because I'm being seen, right? I'm being seen and, and it's being talked about it. And so that doesn't feel good maybe in the moment, but learning in this role that I can tolerate that. Right. I can witness someone feel uncomfortable and not like run away <laughs> because it's so horrible to witness, you know, because, and not just that though, that like, you know, I'm learning like, okay, I can tolerate when others feel uncomfortable, you know, in a, hopefully in a, in a really productive, ultimately productive conversation, but also that like, I hopefully sending the message to who, you know, whomever I'm talking with colleague or or whatever, that I trust that they can be with their discomfort. I think there's this feeling of like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to dance around this issue because I don't actually trust that you can handle this. But how disempowering is that? Right. Like, right. I trust that you, whoever it is that I'm talking with can be with whatever this brings up and I can be with you in that and that we can get through it together. And we're not these like sort of fragile beings that, that can't handle a moment like this that we can and I trust myself and I trust you that we can sort of sit in the muck of it rather than feel like we have to you know it's too scary yeah that I think that I was thinking about that just that um that idea that like I'm telling you this uncomfortable thing because I know you can handle it rather than making the decision for you that you can't that's one piece of it that I think is really important and also sometimes it also comes from a place of like, well, I value this relationship enough to have this conversation with you yes. instead of just burying it and saying, eh, this isn't going to help and I'm going to walk away. Right. So I think that that hopefully can come across as like a form of respect for people. It doesn't always read that way. Like everybody's coming to the work with their own complicated history around conflict and confrontation, myself included. But um, that's the hope that it comes across eventually is like respect and value and, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and like, Hey, let's be adults here about this. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. Well, I was having a conversation recently with another therapist who Joanna happens to know really well. And we were talking about systems of power and how therapists in particular can be incredibly dangerous when we don't recognize our power and use it appropriately, have accountability, right? Like all this stuff. And she's also, you know, been a practice owner. And, you know, so we thought like, what makes us not operate the way that some of these other systems have operated? And what we came to is vulnerability, that we have a certain level of comfort with vulnerability, where we then can tolerate the feedback, we can tolerate having done it wrong, getting our own accountability, right? I think that that's one of the other unique things about Head Heart is that like that is the mandate to lead with vulnerability as a leader, as a manager. Curious if y'all have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, for me, what's coming up right away is like being able to model that I think helps with clients too, right? So just like as an example, like I feel like being in this space and, and being contained in this way, like I had a, a client who... I don't know, in our first or second session, just went off on me. 
I was the worst therapist that they'd ever met. I was so bad. I was so horrible. They couldn't believe how bad I was, all this stuff, right? And like, whoa, that was painful. There was a, definitely a part of me that just wanted to run away from it, right? Like, I mean, A, there was this like, oh my God, Sarah and Royale are going to agree with him and think I'm the worst therapist in the world. So I can't say that. But I think like really in processing it out with you all and in and, and supervision and all that came to this place where I, I was able to tolerate that enough where I actually learned a lot from it. I go back to that session all the time whenever I have to have tough conversations with clients. Yes. And like, I remember that one session as like, I tolerate that. I got through that. I am in a space and a place that supports me and contains me. And so like, I can continue that and be okay. Yeah. I, you know, when I think of vulnerability, I think of, again, just sort of what I learned about it from an early age, which is it vulnerability could result in loss of attachment. If I'm vulnerable, you know, if I'm honest about what's really happening for me, I could be rejected or abandoned or shut down, punished, you know, whatever it is. And so for that reason, vulnerability is scary. You know, it's, it has always felt a little scary and continues to feel that way. in it's in certain moments. Um, but I think one of the huge things that I've experienced at head heart is that actually vulnerability can lead to a deepening of attachment, which has been so, you know, so beautiful to, to notice. I mean, I, this Pat 2022 was a tough year for me in terms of my own growth and healing. And because this was modeled for me, um, by, you know, someone in this conversation, I, um, made the decision to go to treatment for my own stuff, trauma and, and a long standing eating disorder. And I was terrified to share that with the team. I was terrified to share that with client. I mean, I sort of used discretion in how I shared that I was taking leave with clients, of course, wanted to be the most therapeutic I possibly could and sharing, but so incredibly healing and reparative to notice that I could share something that felt I mean, immediately evoked shame, you know, shame because this must mean that you're bad or doing something wrong, that you have, you know, have to really take care of yourself. But it was met with so much support and love by all of you, by the team, by however I shared with clients, by them having this sort of unconditional uh, understanding and acceptance. And that experience has changed the way that I view vulnerability and being open because it, if someone does feel like they witness you being authentic and truthful and vulnerable and that repels them, then okay, maybe that relationship isn't supposed to be right. But, and can figure out how to manage that and tolerate that. But for the most part, the people who are doing their own work and <laughs> honest with themselves and care about you in a really real way are going to celebrate your vulnerability. So that's been such a gift. Anything you want to add, Anna? Yeah, a couple things. One is I have to share this story at some point today. And I think this is a good time. But I think I've told Joanna this, that when I was interviewing for this job, my first set of interviews with Joanna, Joanna said, you know, we really want you to apply for this manager position. And I said, okay, I got to be upfront. Like I'm not detail oriented. I'm not good with small administrative tasks. And then 
Joanna said, that's fine because we really want you mostly for clinical supervision. And then I was talking to my dad in between that interview and then the interview with Benji and Rael. And I told him about that. And I was like, it was so reassuring to hear that the focus is X, Y, Z. And my dad was like, okay, but do not repeat that. Don't bring that up again, you know, about like my flaws. And it's like so funny to think back on that, that like, that he was like, you need to just sell yourself and show your like clean, perfect facade. And I had a feeling he was wrong in this case and it ended up working out. But like, he's very traditional and he really wanted me to get the job and that was his advice. So anyway, but that's just a great example of like how different, differently we do things. But um, around the other piece of the vulnerability that I wanted to share, there's a couple things. One is like this, I, this is not a fully formed idea here, but like this idea of the therapist taking feedback from the client and like how in line with our values that is. And I'm realizing lately because of a couple things on my end and then with, with supervisees that I'm new to that and I want to work on it. And I know this is a safe place to do that, but like I think. I know that like being comfortable with that kind of vulnerability is going to make me stronger as a therapist. And there's a part of me that finds that really scary too. So I'm just saying that, that I'm like partway through early on, maybe in that process. So that's, what's been on my mind as far as that goes. I think it's probably more. Yeah. That's all right. We're almost at an hour, but like there are a couple other things that I think I want to get to y'all cool to hang a little bit longer. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I have to bring up the whole wounded healer question while we're here. So I'm just curious how you all hold that term for yourself. Does it feel like it fits? Do you like it? Do you want to push it away? What do you think? I like it. It doesn't even feel like a I, I I love it. I, I, it doesn't feel like a strong enough term. It feels, it just feels like it fits. It feels like such a relief for me as, as someone who, again, personally, as someone who has always felt like I have to, I cannot show wounds. I can't really even have them. Like I, you know, cause what that means that there's some deep inherent flaw or whatever that, you know, that to be a wounded healer feels so it feels like the truth, first of all. You know, it's so interesting that there could potentially be some pushback, right, about being a wounded healer because it is because of my wounds that I, I can do this work. And I know that without the experiences I've had that have, you know, taken me out or, or been really, really hard or, or that I've had to kind of slog through, I wouldn't be able to sit with the kind of material that folks bring to us that feels really sacred and important and real and true. And had I not been aware of my own wounds, I wouldn't be able to do this. Like, I I really, truly believe that. It feels very right to me. I love it too. For... All the things Joanna said, definitely. And I realized too that I'm on my own path and that it is part of what makes me a good therapist is that I'm aware of that and I'm aware of all those imperfections and and I'm trying to like, I'm working towards embracing them and welcoming them in. I love that idea too that we talk about all the time of like, 
opening up space for these flaws and imperfections. It makes me feel more human because without that concept and kind of like maybe when you look at more traditional therapy or traditional social work, there's a a bigger separation between the clinician and the client. And it can get paternalistic and condescending and just distance that is not helpful, I think, in helping people through their process. And so for me, it's like grounding myself in my human experiences is a welcome thing and makes me better at what I do. Yeah. And Benji, I'll let you answer, but I just wanted to speak to Anna. So Rail and I did a presentation yesterday on a working with oppression in the therapy space and looking up like the definitions of what liberation psychology is. One of the tenets of it is the mutual recognition of the humanity and the agency of both the therapist and the client. Yeah, I mean, ditto to what to all of that. <laughs> um, I think the one thing I would add, and for me, I love the term because for me, it, it indicates a sense of like, my clients aren't healing because of anything I'm doing to them. My clients are healing because I'm healing with them. And that feels so vital to me that like, yeah, like to that liberation piece. I remember, you know, we all did this training with Shauna Murray Brown. I know you've had that on the pod. And one quote that I actually keep on my desk that she said was, I'm not healing you. I'm helping you to remember how to heal yourself. And like, I love that quote so much because I think it goes to that, that like, we're not in this like sort of power struggle relationship that's going to heal you. (laughs) And also for me, it's like, also it's this accidental question of what is therapy and what am I as a therapist and what do I want the world to be? And and I think for me, it's like, ultimately I want the world to not need therapists because I think we are all wounded healers, right? Or we all have the potential to be like, I don't think you need a master's degree to do that or a license or (laughs) any of this bullshit, right? (laughs) Not that, you know, I love therapists, obviously I love being one, but ultimately I feel like we shouldn't exist (laughs) because we all have that. Right, like if we, yeah, if we had utopia and yeah, Mm -hmm. we could all just do that work with each other safely. Absolutely. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, so yeah, for me, it's ultimately like I am the wounded healer because I feel like we are all capable of being wounded healers. I totally agree. Yeah. Well, to wrap up, what I was thinking might be lovely is asking if you have a wish for the future, whether that be for yourself and your own growth, for what head heart therapy is, where it's going to go, if it's for Rael, like whatever, something, some wish that you have that you want to leave listeners with? I mean, I, I'm just trying to be present to what organically is coming up. And like the word that's coming up for me is unlearning. And like, I, that's just what's coming up right, right in this moment. And so I guess, you know, to kind of move with that, you know, just the wishes that we can continue to unlearn. Again, it feels personal to me in my own work, but I think it, as a practice, it's something that we can really continue to do is is try to unlearn so much of what we've been conditioned to believe is true, right? That there's, there is some learning that we all have. I mean, to speak to Benji, what you were just saying that, you know, we have to be these experts and we have to, you, we have to know what's right for, for the client. That's impossible. We can't, that's not what is healing. What is healing is, is allowing the client to come to that on, on their own terms. But to unlearn, right? To unlearn the 
so much of what, how we need to present as humans and as therapists, as managers, as a collective, that can we unlearn whatever it is that keeps us from being authentic and, and living truthfully and with accountability, however that manifests. But just that, that unlearning continues to be a practice for, for all of us, that we can be comfortable with saying, oh, that thing that I've done all my life or that I've learned to believe, actually, I'm going to question that and be curious about it and be okay with sort of letting that fall away. That would be my wish. Yeah, I think the, the thing coming up for me is acceptance, radical acceptance. I have a coven and, and we were just doing a ritual where we talked with the goddess of Imbolc. I forgot her name, but uh, Bridget. <laughs> so we were talking about Bridget. Thank you. Yes, uh, Bridget. And so the, it, this came up for me during that as well. And uh, just carrying it forward that there's still so many parts of myself that I have such a hard time accepting. And I think like a big part of that, like Anna, you mentioned hosting that fat liberation meeting. And I think a big part of that actually came from that for me. And um, like, I've struggled with body dysmorphia my whole life. And like, uh, noticing that like, that's still a part of me that I just, just is so dysregulating and feels so unsafe for me. And my queerness that I've repressed for so long and hid so long and, and like forced myself to be all sorts of what I perceive masculinity should be and, and all that bullshit, right? <laughs> so yeah, it sort of, sort of, you said kind of the same thing, Joanna, like, I don't know what exactly that looks like as a practice. I think it's sort of just like keeping on doing what it's doing, right? And, and keep hiring people who, who are willing to go there with each other. Because it's like, I've always wanted to be able to like heal these things on my own. But like, <laughs> I think at heart is like, really forced me to recognize that that's just not possible. Right? And, and like really fostering that community where, where we can, yeah, we can learn together. You know, I think in that fat liberation meeting, like that was so powerful, I think, for everyone that was there. Like, Agreed. I think we all got something out of it. Yeah. There were tears, there were laughs, there. <laughs> we were really in community. That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, that's awesome. What you got, Anna? Well, it's really nice to hear that about the Fat Liberation meeting. It was so meaningful to me, too, to um, present the information and facilitate that open conversation with everybody. And I think this is connected that, you know, when I thought about what I wish for, for the practice for myself was like, I want to keep growing. I have so much to learn as a manager and as a therapist and that I am hoping and excited for the prospect of all of that working alongside my own personal growth in my life and as a partner and as a parent and as a human walking around on the planet that this willingness to lean into like the vulnerability and accountability and love, the loving space that we've created is going to carry over into other parts of my life. I expect that probably will happen, but that is also my, my wish to just keep on in this direction. There's like a lot ahead of me here and, you know, I'm nervous about it and excited. Mm. That's so cool. I love you each individually and I love you collectively in a very specific way because 
it's been nine years now to like be the owner of the practice and there's been so much that I've been through and it's been really exhausting. And without you, Rael would not be able to take over. And so each specific gift that you bring individually creates this really beautiful collective holding space around Rael and around the team. And it's, I cannot, I'm so excited. Like two years from now, the practice is going to be so different, but I think just as cool and unique and amazing. And I, I just can't wait to see what happens. And you guys are going to put your own little stamp on it along with Rael. And it's just going to be so fucking cool. So thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Well, this went even better than I even thought it would. I thought four people might be a little unwieldy, but it was beautiful and and brilliant. So I just I'm so appreciative for you. You all, I know some of you were kind of nervous and you were able to just like allow that and show up really authentically and really, really vulnerably today. So you're beautiful. Thank you. Thanks. So are you. Thank you. Thanks to our guest for an amazing conversation today. To find out more about today's guest, you can visit www.headheartbiztherapy.com slash podcast. Thanks as always to Andrea Clunder and the Creative Imposter Studios for editing, to Liam O'Donnell for our album art, and to Ben Mueller for our theme music. Until next time, bye-bye.